listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. You know, whether somebody is using drugs or not, their life is still valuable. Naloxone is a lifesaver. Remember that we're not our disease. I am not a bag of heroin. I'm Stacy. I'm just as normal as the next person. My outlook has always been to educate because I think when you're talking about stigma here as, a, as an overall goal of yours, I think the only way to really gnaw away at that is to educate people. Unfortunately, I have not had many positive experiences with the medical community, with anybody I know or anybody in my family. I hope that changed. Opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. It's it's not something that you know goes away forever. It's not like you you go through a treatment program and then suddenly it's not a problem anymore. No, we don't always get it the first time, and you know, sometimes it takes us a couple times before we finally get it. Don't give up on us so easily. Hi, my name is Logan Kissel, and let's talk stigma. Let's Talk Stigma is an educational podcast miniseries designed to highlight the stigma associated with opioid use disorder and the ongoing opioid epidemic. Each of these episodes will feature a number of different voices from individuals who have in some way experienced the effects of the opioid epidemic, whether in their social life, family life, or professional career. We hope listeners of this podcast will listen with an open mind, reflect on the stories they hear, and be able to recognize and combat stigma associated with opioid use disorder. On today's episode of Let's Talk Stigma, we'll hear about the impact that both naloxone and harm reduction services have on the lives of individuals with opioid use disorder. We'll hear from patients, practitioners, family members, and those who work directly with people who use drugs. I was talking to one gentleman the other the other week. He was in his neighborhood and he saw somebody overdose. He didn't have any naloxone with him and he was, you know, horrified to watch this person die. I mean, he called the police and everything and it to, to watch someone die. And so he said, I always carry it with me, no matter what. We hear again from Lauren Junkman, a pharmacist who you met in previous episodes, who cares for underserved patient populations. There can sometimes be this perception that if you provide folks with naloxone, that it somehow increases people's likelihood to use, even though that's not the case. I think when I've talked about having it for folks, we talk a lot about just being prepared, that you know, that they could come home at, you know, at any time and and have a loved one that has overdosed. And again, they, they want to be able to do something to help. And then also, you know, depending on where folks are living and what, you know, their context is, I think people, people know that this is, that there is a high risk that people will overdose, that they will see someone who overdoses. I think a lot of people are really open to having it. I don't think I've had a big problem. I don't think I've ever had anybody who said, you know, afraid to have it or didn't want it. I mean, there are folks that say, yeah, no, I don't need it, but I don't think I've ever had a, had someone who was very afraid to have it. But the thing we also struggled with a lot is that the most affordable option for naloxone for us was the vials with, and giving folks vials and syringes. It's, you know, not, not difficult to teach someone who has, you know, used, used drugs intravenously, how to drop naloxone from a vial. Like that's not a problem. 
But um, a lot of the folks that are interested in asking for naloxone, they're worried about their family members. They're worried about their community. For us working with in limited resource settings, we struggle with the cost. There's a push to have it more available, but there hasn't necessarily been that push to always have it available for people free. So that I think is definitely a, a, a challenge. In addition to naloxone, what other harm reduction services do you provide to your patients? For example, can you tell us a little bit more about syringe service programs or teaching patients how to be safer with their drug use? Just at clinic the other week, there was this young woman who had a really bad infection in a joint, and she was continuing to inject into that area. So she had an abscess somewhere else and was and, and was sharing needles with her, her partner, who also he had an abscess somewhere. And so, you know, the, the medical resident at the clinic was kind of talking that she needed to go to the hospital because it was, it was more severe than we could do like IND at clinic. But I, you know, asked the, the resident, I'm like, does she need clean needles? Like, is that something that would be helpful for her? And so he, he checked with her and she was very happy to, to be able to have some, some clean syringes and clean needles, because I think the easy thing to say is to not to not inject, but that's not a likely thing to happen right away. And so at least that yeah, our focus is about, you know, about making sure that she is still alive at the point where she is ready to quit. You know, in, in Pennsylvania, it used to be illegal to sell um, syringes without a prescription. When I was a pharmacy student, it was not legal. And the law passed like either as well, while I was a P4 or like right after I finished pharmacy school. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think it has significantly changed people's access. I had two pharmacy students a number of years ago do a survey of pharmacists. So it was folks who had been preceptors. And, you know, I was really surprised at the number of pharmacies and pharmacists who did not, who would not sell syringes to to people who asked for them. Hearing that, it made me sad to think, and it's not that I'm not completely surprised, but I think, you know, it takes a lot for somebody who is injecting substances to ask somebody for clean syringes. Like for somebody to come into a space and ask for something, to be willing to spend money, that's a big thing. Like that means that that person has prioritized that as, as something that they know is helpful for their health. And, you know, for them to be kind of shot down is I think really disheartening. And, and I think that we have a really important role to play in, in this risk reduction strategy, right? Like the idea is that we can reduce the amount of people that, that get endocarditis. We can reduce the amount of people that you know, have HIV or hepatitis C or other things like we have a significant role to play in making sure that by the time that person is ready to stop using that they that they are still healthy to be able to that they have not, you know, completely impacted their health in, in very, very impactful ways. And even just hearing about the ways that some of the pharmacies were creating in order to be a barrier. So, you know, not breaking boxes of syringes, not selling them in packs of 10, but only selling them in boxes of 100 or giving prices that were much more than what they would have given the price otherwise. And I can say as a pharmacist working at a free clinic that I've had a number of patients who are 
insulin users who have told me that they have tried to go to the pharmacy to buy syringes when we didn't have enough at the clinic or we, or, you know, they just were running low and the pharmacies turned away people who were insulin users. So by, by having these rules around selling syringes, it's, it's impactful for lots of people and adds all this stigma to, you know, something that is should probably not have that much stigma, like using a syringe. There are lots of legitimate reasons to be using syringes. And, you know, I I just think it's really problematic that that is the case. And it was interesting hearing that the reasons that pharmacists were saying were that they were, that they had had experiences with people, you know, getting high in their, in their bathrooms or putting syringes and plate needles and things in places that, that could expose other people you know, when we, we should be kind of solution focused and think, okay, so the solution should not be limiting people's access, but instead should be, how do we make it safe? And it's, I know it's a really tricky and complicated situation, but I think, you know, we, we also need to think about what is, what is right for people. And I think, yeah, making sure that people have access to clean needles is, is one thing, especially if people are willing to spend money to buy them. Like, yeah, we can, we can, we have a really big impact that we can make. And by doing that, it shows that we don't buy into all that stigma. We don't buy into that hype that it's not okay. And we hear again from the Kellys who share their thoughts on naloxone, harm reduction strategies, and their work with local law enforcement. For me personally, I think it's just people talking about just how important saving somebody's life is that they can get to the point where they can get recovery. My husband was saved by Narcan twice. So, and each time that was an opportunity for him to, to be sitting here today. So why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, that's the profession you're in. I, I can't imagine why people don't want to save somebody's life. We don't always get it right away. And that's the struggling thing, I think, about, you know, being an, an addict. It took me many times before I finally got it. I've seen many people where I never thought they would get it and they got it. And there are some people that don't get it. But I don't think that, I think everybody deserves the same chance, no matter who you are. Yeah, I love it, but I wish it was free. <laughs> so, I mean, I wish you had to pay for it. I wish you could just go in and get it. And we did a Narcan giveaway two years ago in Turtle Creek. We had a lot of people make really negative comments about us doing that in Turtle Creek. But the people that, the number of people that came, we were out of Narcan kits in probably an hour. Like we had to have people come back like twice. And then we were supposed to be there until like two in the afternoon, three in the afternoon. And we were done by noon. Like there was just no more. And we had people calling and calling and saying, where's the Narcan? Where's the Narcan? So, I mean, for me, I think it's wonderful that it's available. I just wish it could be more available. Treating it like any other life-saving device. It shouldn't be any different than a defibrillator. I can't say the word, but some, you know, something like that, or even like, yeah, even like, you know, even like an EpiPen for somebody who's having an allergic reaction or insulin for somebody who has diabetes. I mean, it shouldn't be treated any differently than any of those things. I see things like, you know, Narcan's free. Why isn't my EpiPen and stuff like that? And, you know, I think what a lot of people don't know about the fact of Narcan being free is because a lot of people lobbied and pushed and pushed and pushed and, you know, got it to be free. Um so nothing is free, you know. That costs some people money and it costs some people time. And it's because they care about saving the life of, you know, somebody until they can get it. 
I'm the lead community engagement coordinator and lead is the law enforcement assisted diversion program. It's a national model um, that's a pre-arrest diversion program. So it's really working to keep people who have problematic behavior or substance use disorders out of the criminal justice system. We're looking to pilot it in Allegheny County in the city of Pittsburgh, hoping to have some of these pilots started hopefully in the spring of 2021. We're working with a number of municipalities in the city of Pittsburgh to do this. As the mayor of Turtle Creek, I really ran because I didn't like how our family was treated when my husband was was in the worst of, of his substance use disorder. And I wanted to change that. So a lot of people said it's it might be a good opportunity for you to, to work with the police and help them understand a little better of, of what somebody who's struggling with this really goes through and how they can help instead of, of harm. Because a lot of times people who have substance use disorders, they're very traumatized when, when they have to come in contact with law enforcement for you know any kind of reason, and it can make their use even worse. In the seven years that I've been mayor, I've really worked hard to kind of reduce that stigma with our officers and our community by sharing my story. My husband shares his story, being very open and honest about it, talking about the harms that happened because of, you know, our interactions with law enforcement and, and how they were and how I would like to see it different in our community moving forward. And, you know, we've had a really positive response to it at first. Probably they were a little afraid of me coming in the door thinking I, you know, wanted to, to change everything and make them do their jobs differently. But I think when they got to know us and understand our story and understand what we've been through and how what they do normally can affect somebody in our position, you know, it really, it, it really had them kind of take a look at how they do their job. So many officers and so many people now know somebody who's affected by this disease. So a lot of them came and, and talked to us about people they know, people in their family. I've had a lot of community members call me. They won't publicly thank me or they won't come to me at a meeting and tell me, but they'll email me or they'll send me a letter or they'll message me and say, I really appreciate that you're sharing your story. You know, I have the same thing happening. Where can I go for help? Things like that. So really just going out and talking about our experience has, for me at least, I, I've seen that stigma be reduced because of that. Mike Sabota and Mike Palladini, two pharmacists who you met in previous episodes, work alongside prescribers who treat patients with substance use disorders or prescribe pain medications. You know, naloxone is on par with an EpiPen and don't be afraid to talk about it. And more importantly, we can use the Narcan or naloxone discussion to begin a conversation with the patient on potential risks, be it accidental, or you could, you know, kind of slide in a little discussion there that they may not want to you know, bring up about, oh yeah, I might take additional, that they're not willing to divulge at the time. So naloxone discussions are, are key to beginning a discussion about OUD potential, high risks with respiratory depressants, uh, and getting a patient engaged. At this point in time, with all the education and all the you know, grant-funded programs that have been out there, that, that naloxone is an easy discussion to have and something that is is key to continuing the discussion about treating OUD. Well, maybe it was just one, one simple statement. Naloxone is a lifesaver. That's exactly what naloxone is. It is a lifesaver. No different than an, an EpiPen. 
and that by all means is the key. The, the fact of the matter is somebody brought back from Narcan has suffered from a traumatic event. And that traumatic event can lead them to long-term maintenance therapy. That's proven. And that can be the catalyst to getting them into treatment. And Joellen Marsh provided us with her approach on how she starts conversations with people about naloxone. I usually start talking to people about Narcan and naloxone and just have it be a conversation. So I ask them if they've ever heard of it or know what it is. And you, you can kind of see where they're at from that. So they say, yeah, it's something that you give to addicts. That, you know, that's a starting point where, you know, okay, we're going to have a conversation about language here too. One of the best ways that I've heard and then started using was I heard Dr. Rachel, Dr. Rachel Levine talk about, you know, if somebody has diabetes uh, we wouldn't deny them their, you know, their insulin. Or if somebody's had a heart attack, and we tell them to, you know, change their diet, start exercising, and they don't do any of that, and they still have a heart attack, we wouldn't deny them care because they had a second or even a third heart attack. And it's the same thing for for Narcan. Narcan is important no matter how many times people need to use it. There is no other medical condition that we would that we would even think of denying somebody services for even when it is associated with, you know, something related to their lifestyle that is impacting them negatively. I wear a little button that says, I carry Narcan. I put it on everything I'm taking. I put it on my purse. I put it on my coat. You know, I always have it with me. And that starts so many conversations. I've had so many people come up to me and say, thank you for carrying Narcan. I had one person, I was, uh, I was ordering coffee and the barista said, hey, my brother overdose last week and was saved by Narcan. Thank you so much for carrying it. This is really important. And so I think maybe being just more public, even in our social lives about uh, that we want to learn and that we are starting to think about these things in a different way. I think that will start a lot of conversations and allow us to be able to empathize more. I think, you know, trying to volunteer for certain services programs would be really important. Try to volunteer in different places where you can see how other service providers offer their services and maybe trying to bring some of those lessons back as well. I know you've worked really closely with harm reduction services for people with substance use disorders. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I remember I went to the National Harm Reduction Coalition's conference a couple of years ago, and I had only been working in harm reduction for a few months at that point. And so this was the first time that I'd gotten to be around a whole bunch of harm reductionists who were talking and get, getting to go to all these panels. And I remember going to one panel where it was a, a panel about drug user harm or drug user organizing. And the woman who was leading the session said, I use heroin every day. And I remember feeling just a little bit shocked uh, because I'd never met an empowered drug user who was talking about it uh, as a thing that she wasn't ashamed of. So she said, I don't feel like myself if I don't use heroin. She said, I am a supervisor. I go to work every day. People say, hey, you don't seem like you seem a little different. And she said, oh, I haven't used today. So like, this is just a normal part of her life. And I had never met anybody and I didn't think it was possible. I, I think really when I'm talking to somebody with a substance use disorder, I really try to remember that what they're doing, they have their own reasons for what they're doing. And I can't say that I wouldn't do the same thing in their position. And so understanding that I'm not there to tell them to do something different, but I'm there to offer them options and offer them resources and just 
see them as a fellow human being. And most of the time when you talk to somebody, there is something that they could use help with or want, but oftentimes they feel really ashamed to even be talking about it. A needle exchange is also called a syringe services program. Um, That's how you'll often see them written when we're talking about policies. Syringe services programs are incredibly important. Basically what they do is they provide comprehensive services for people who use drugs. We recognize that if you're just taking out all stigma or all morality around drug use, when we're looking at keeping our population healthy, syringe service programs are one of the most evidence-based ways of doing that. So they prevent things like endocarditis, uh, they prevent wound infections, they prevent hepatitis C, they prevent HIV. All of these things are an enormous cost for our health system when, when they're not prevented. So, you know, endocarditis can cost you know, half a million dollars easily to be treated. And not to mention the, the other types of uh, costs after that. So if you're even just looking from a cost standpoint, a 10 cent needle is extremely cost effective. But I think even almost as much as the physical benefits of, of providing needles is also just recognizing that when somebody comes to a syringe services program, they're treated like a human being. They're greeted and it's, you know, just as somebody coming into a pharmacy is greeted, you know, you are, are treating somebody with dignity and respect. And many times people who use drugs find that they're not treated with dignity and respect. And unfortunately, that often occurs at pharmacies. There are many people who have told me personally that they've gone into a pharmacy to try to get Narcan and were turned away and were denied Narcan. There are people who've said that they've gone into pharmacies to try to get sterile syringes and because of the way they looked or because of the way the the pharmacist was was perceiving them, they were refused needles. Now, if I walked into a pharmacy, I look like, you know, a typical middle-class woman. I took a shower this morning. I I look like I could be going in for for diabetes or, or asking for whatever. And I would bet that I would have a very different reception from many pharmacists than if somebody who was experiencing homelessness and, you know, maybe hadn't been able to take a shower for a few weeks, maybe their clothes were not as clean. Oftentimes that person will be treated very differently. And I think that really is part of the stigma. And I think at syringe services programs, what they really focus on is making sure that the the staff and volunteers who staff those programs are treating everybody the same way and are treating everybody with compassion and kindness. And I think that has a major effect on people. And I believe that, that being treated with compassion and respect and kindness is one of the reasons that when people decide, okay, I, I want to get into treatment. I, I can't stop on my own. I need help. That they, the first place they go is a syringe services program. This podcast was developed by the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in partnership with Duquesne University School of Pharmacy. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.